Traveling solo versus group travel. It's a universal question, be it for motorcycle adventures, hikers, canoeists, whatever. Often the first response people give is that there's safety in numbers. And that's true. But with numbers, there's also some drawbacks, like divided interests in the places you're visiting. Or maybe your traveling speed. One goes slow, one goes fast. And the question quickly becomes a quandary as you go through the pros and cons of each. The answer is often in compromise. What are you willing to give up here to gain there? Today we look at solo versus group travel. And in the end, what's your compromise? Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. We've got a good one coming up for you. We're going to listen to Greg Powell and Bill Hoykes do their presentation Two Ways Down, which we recorded at the Horizons Unlimited Meet in Ontario in the Muskokas this year in 2014. We're also going to talk with Brent Henry, a motorcyclist from British Columbia, about solo versus group travel. Well, to kick things off, we're going to go straight to the Horizons Unlimited Meet in Ontario, Canada, in Perry Sound, recorded this year in 2014, where we've got Greg Powell and Bill Hoykes doing their presentation two ways down. Now you remember a few episodes ago we covered the hub meeting in Ontario, or at least a little bit of it anyway. And at that meeting I listened to Greg Powell and Bill Hoykes do a presentation they call Two Ways Down, which is quite interesting because the two of them have done the same trip, only completely different ways. One has taken the trip solo, I believe it was Greg Powell had, had done the trip solo, and Bill Hoykes had signed on with a commercial group and done the trip with them. And throughout this presentation, they talk about the juxtaposition between the two types of trips and also the pros and cons of each. So to set this up, uh, it takes us back a couple of months at the Horizons Unlimited Meet in Ontario, Perry Sound. It's a freezing cold weekend, but there's a lot of people there, a lot of presentations going on. And in this particular building, it's freezing cold. It's a a barn slash auditorium. And Greg and Bill are about to come on stage and tell us their story. Through it in a somewhat sequential way, so we're going to talk about the group pros and the solo pros and the group cons, solo cons, and then back and forth like that. When you go in a group, you're paying big bucks. You have no, you have no worries. Everything's under control. The world is good. We'll take care of you. Uh, well, yeah, they'll give you your prearranged hotels, your breakfast daily, your weekly group supper, where everybody gets together and sort of. Uh, goes over what's happened in the past week and what you can expect for the following week. It's uh, it's basically a get-together session for everybody. Uh, every day they give you a suggested route, which is point A to B, your hotel for the night, and then the route that you should go and suggested uh, gas and food stops along the way. But you are free to go any direction you want as long as you're at the hotel before 7 o'clock at night because then they call out the gendarme and they start looking for you uh, because they don't know what's happened to you and then nobody else can drink until uh, you're safely there. I get in trouble a lot for that because I, I, I tend to uh, do my own thing and uh, you know we'd often come in late at night and he'd be really ticked. I can understand that but shit, for my holiday. Uh, 
there's a schedule that's got to be maintained. I mean, those, those ferry crossings are pre-booked. The hotels are pre-booked. You've got to be there because they paid for it. And you can't become a laggard. Uh, you leave before the support van in the morning. And you arrive before the evening meeting. They give you the route. You follow that route. You're guaranteed that the support van will be along if you have a tire or a breakdown or whatever or you had enough for the day or you get the flu. He's coming along, he can help fix the bike, he can put the bike on the van if necessary, you're going to be found. You vary from the suggested route, you're on your own. If you get a flat out there, nobody's going to come back or go off the route to find you, you're on your own. Border crossings are facilitated uh, because each one is a pain in the rear and they take hours, so they'll hire a fixer to get everybody through and pay the requisite uh, uh, tips to the, uh, the local uh, officials and every evening you have a meeting. The meeting at 7 o'clock consists of lots of liquid refreshment basically to unwind from the stressful day. Yeah. What was the typical daily distance? Uh, it really varied. It depended on the severity of the roads. Uh, when we came across the Mexico border it was a long day because we wanted to put as many miles between the border area, Nuevo Laredo. I think you crossed there too, didn't you? No. Okay. No, uh, and, and 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 us. So the first night was as far inland as you could go. So we went two or three hundred miles. But uh, typically, it's a two, three hundred kilometer day. Okay. Not a lot more. Now to the, the route that we took was forty thousand kilometers. Yes. Okay. Four months. So okay. we'll start dividing all that up. Then you got. Well, we'll get into other things later on, but that's about the average. Who are you with? Globusters, the same as uh, the folks did around the world. Oh, you went from the top to the bottom? Yes. Uh, Globusters is basically the preeminent expedition tours. They do the really long stuff, year-long tours, six months, four months. They do the long stuff, not the three-week you know, vacations. Uh, interactions uh, with the locals, uh, they tell you where the local, the worthy local sites are that you should go visit, uh, they tell you where they are, you pay for them extra uh, to see them. At the borders you're going to have, this is one of my pictures that you saw earlier, if you were in one of your earlier lectures uh, or presentations, uh, you need local currency and you're going to find out that uh, these guys can rip you off if you're not well uh, researched. You check on the Wi-Fi the night before, a couple of nights before, find out what the exchange rate is, and then you know you can make your change. And then you ask, why do you use these guys at the border when there's banks around who are more legitimate? Well, you may have to get your bike fumigated just on the other side before they let you through the second step of your entry. And you don't have their local currency. You know, all you've got is the powerful American dollar to pay for something that's just a you know, a little squirt on your front wheel to fumigate your bike. It's just a, 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 a money grab. Uh, so if you can get some of their local pesos or whatever the currency is and uh, just have it in your hand to, to pay off bribes or whatever you need it for, it's handy. But you better know what the exchange rate is. They will also tell you what is a fair exchange and they'll be standing there with you as you're doing your, your money laundering. Uh, you can stop where you, where you want, go off-road, uh, be adventurous. But don't be a tourist because, you know, everybody can get the pictures of Machu Picchu and, you know, stand there and that, like we did as well. 
But you have the opportunity with your own wheels to go and find those sites that the buses don't go to. And those are the ones, the little towns that never see tourists. And those are the ones you want to see. Okay, so the hotels are, are pre-selected. That's a confidence thing uh, for several reasons. Secure parking. You know, you want guards or fenced in with barbed wire places to keep the bikes. Because well, you got 20 high-end BMWs, there's a lot of money sitting there, so you pay the money. You couldn't afford to do that if you were on your own. You just got to make sure you put it in, in your own room or whatever. You want Wi-Fi, that's become a requirement now. You want showers, obviously, because sometimes you can be kind of dirty after a long day's ride in the dirt. Uh, one or more people in the group will be compatible with you. Uh, as you know, and if you were in the last uh, talk, you, you, you know what can happen when you have somebody that you're stuck with for 28 days. Well, imagine being stuck with a person like that for four months, and you're stuck with it. You can't say, go away, I'm going my own. You're, every night you're going to see that person again. So if, if you really rub each other, you're stuck with that person for four months or longer. Anyway, uh, why? Can it be a problem? You got cultural differences on a tour group. You could have people from, from Iran, from Australia, from England, from America, Mexicans, people that don't speak English, all kinds of cultural differences. Differences in riding styles. They, they, they do pass cars differently. They, they go around corners differently in different cultures. Some cultures, like the British, ride on the opposite side of the road. And they're getting used to riding the way we ride over here. All of that has, has a bearing. Their uh, drinking preferences are different than we, we might be used to over here. Uh, they drink a lot. Uh, <laughs> speaking about that, they, uh, one thing that was way out of my reach, but a lot of these people on these tours from Europe ship their bikes over, and they're fairly wealthy folks. And, uh, you know, you take a, a turn to buy a round at night at 7 o'clock. Well, they're buying this really expensive wine. I don't drink wine. And then they had two or three bottles, and I get stuck with a $200 bill at the end of the night when I just want a couple of bottles of beer. Uh, it, it, and they do this every night, and it, it gets very expensive. So be prepared to be an outsider or join the group and, and you know, pay your share when it's your turn. Uh, some will be completely out of their element and slow the group down because they're so timid, afraid to ride the gravel, afraid to ride in the city, bumping into each other in group riding. Uh, but having said that, you'll make lifelong friendships with people around the world. Uh, most of you will know how hard it is to find a good riding partner. It can take years. If you ever find somebody who's really compatible and you really click with and you can ride similar styles, similar bikes, same ability to take time off, whatever it may be. In my case, uh, Brando uh, from Switzerland here became my road, uh, roommate and we became great friends. Uh, Kathy mentioned on her tour there were two people that are in Kazakhstan now. They became good friends and they're traveling in, in, in the stands. Uh, three of us from this trip are, are doing Asia next June 8th. So we're going to go across Russia, Mongolia and that. But we made the friendships and the problem is they don't live nearby. They're all over the world but we're, we've got the similar riding style. So they've come over here with their bikes and we've ridden together. I'm going to go over there and hopefully that'll you know, be something. So you've got to contact another conference. The, the nice thing is with, with a group, the handyman is not far off, but uh, injury or death is always very close. On my tour, I, as I said earlier, day one, first hour, Anchorage, Alaska, guy dies on the tour. The very first hour.
So uh, Kathy and, and Larry had somebody die on their tour as well. A lot of broken legs, broken bones, you know, uh, injuries. What do you attribute that to? Lack of experience. From England, yeah. took the BMW off-road school, took the BMW on-road school, the official schools, had the nice piece of paper on the wall, went to the course. Uh, a company will not say, uh, no, you're not ready, because they're, if they have 20 people sign up for a tour, the first 15 are their margin, are, are to cover their costs. Those last five people are where they're going to make their profit, okay? Like Kathy, $100,000 <clears> times 20, $2 million to put the, the, the course, the, the, the route on. Uh, you know, the first $20,000 has to be covered, and then you start making profit. So if you're a, a businessman, you're not going to say to that guy who's iffy on whether you should go, no, I think you should wait a year, wait two years to get more saddle time. Because what's that guy going to do? He's going to go to the next company. He's going to go to, to uh, Compass Expeditions. And Compass will take him. Or the other guy will take him because he's got $100,000 in his hand that he wants to spend. That's a customer that you've lost. So from a business perspective, you know, it's going to be hard for them to turn somebody away who's willing to spend that kind of coin. Uh, that's the problem because those people are who you're riding with and may not have the ability, the skills, and that becomes a danger for you. Uh, there's always somebody who's a paramedic in the group. Uh, we had a guy who was a paramedic with the SAS. Uh, he, he was really good because he was the first guy on the scene when the guy lost his face uh, up in Anchorage, uh, but he couldn't do anything for him. If you have to lift a 600-pound bike, like these things are fully loaded, Several times a day, it really wears you up when you're at altitude and in high temperatures. You like to have the help when you're traveling because there's always somebody coming down the road behind you to lift it up. Uh, there's always people to go out with, uh, for meals. You're never alone. There's always somebody to hang around with. Group meals are nice. You get to meet people, get to know them. Because you're not traveling in a group, you're traveling with one buddy, two buddies, whatever. There's always someone who speaks a language. It's expensive. They uh, five star, four or five star hotels, beautiful spots to stay in. The rooms are always shared unless you want to pay extra and uh, and uh, get a, a single room. But there were some areas where people didn't have to pay extra, but circumstances dictated that they had their own room. One guy had a terrible snoring problem. Went through about four or five different roommates, and nobody would stay with him. So he ended up with his own room because he snored so much. And the other guy had never heard of showering. And uh, nobody wanted to even get near him because he smelled so much. So yeah, again, you can't pick your, your, your mates on this trip. The food's great. They really try to find good spots for good food. They make sure the hotels have safe water. They, they vented everything before uh, you go. But everything comes at a cost. This is a, a converted monastery that's turned into a hotel just stunning. And that's where you stay. You'll have lots of photos and lots of experiences to share. If you didn't take the photo, somebody else will. And then you combine all of them and there's a huge treasure trove of experiences that you'll remember and, and have access to. Uh, lots of people have GoPros on their helmets and lots of stills were taken. Uh, when you're traveling all day, it's hard to stop at a roadside cafe if you're by yourself and have a beer or a freshie or a 7-Up or a, a croissant. Uh, if you're alone, speak, surrounded by uh, cowboys who don't speak your language, you want to talk to them, you try, but 
you really can't carry on a conversation so often you're just sort of sitting in the corner by yourself. At least you've got a riding partner, you, you can have a deal with somebody, and it's also a little bit safer in some of the shadier areas. Uh, a lot of guys are keeping uh, blogs for the family at home. You share the addresses for the blog so your family can see various aspects of the trip. And spot locators are always on. The company owns them. They have them with all the staff riders, two outriders and one in the supply van. Uh, uh, so that's a, a good bit of confidence. And that was Bill Hoykes talking about what it was like to do the trip on a guided adventure. Now Greg Powell takes the stage and talks about taking the same trip, except on his own. Great. Okay, so I chose to do the same trip. Um, I rode Alaska to Argentina uh, by myself. I chose to go alone um, for, for many reasons. I had actually, my first adventure travel was actually a bicycle trip in Africa, and uh, it was an organized tour, and I've been in some of the similar issues that Bill did, but the main thing was um, it's very hard to find somebody to go with you. So for a variety of reasons, which, which I'll get into later, I chose to do the trip by myself. The biggest advantage for me to going on my own was the freedom to, to ride my own ride. I decided what I did every day. So if I woke up one morning and it was rainy and cold like it is today, and I felt like going back to sleep, I went back to sleep. Nobody told me I had to get up and go, or be at a certain place at a certain time. So I was able to sleep when I was tired, eat when I was hungry. I really didn't get any pressure from anybody else to go anywhere that I didn't want to go. And it was total freedom. I, I set my own pace. Uh, I could stay in the place as long as I wanted to. I could leave if I, if I didn't like it, I could go. If I liked it, I could stay longer. To me, that was really what my trip was about. My trip was about having the adventure and, and not being on a schedule. And I, I think part of that might have been, you know, I'm an accountant by trade, so I always have a deadline and always have something I have to do at a certain time. And not having that, to me, was, was total, total freedom. Um, more interaction with locals. Uh, when you're one person, it's very easy to be invited somewhere. Uh, you're not as intimidating as, as you are with the whole group. Um, in this particular case, this photo, that guy, uh, I met through, um, through the hub, I met a guy in Mexico who introduced me to Julio, and he rides, he's rode Guatemala for 30 years, so I ended up staying at his house. Um, I stayed probably 20 days at his house in total. And he just introduced me to a bunch of his riding buddies, and we went out and rode Guatemala together. So it was very easy. Uh, you know, it's, you're one person, you don't have to, everybody's got an extra bed, everybody's got a sofa, there's always a spot before you can throw a mattress for one person, and, and you're not really that big of a burden when you're on your own. If you get more than one person, then you start running into space, and you know, people get worried about safety issues, and more of a concern, but one person's not bad, uh, you're a lot less threatening and you really get the chance to interact with people when you're sitting in their living room in their in their house in their country you really learn a lot about the country and you get to take it in finding a place to park one bike is easy this was just in the hotel lobby uh, you can't see it in the picture but there's a gate behind the bike and it was a step about this big in so the the hotel owner just simply grabbed some rocks put them down and I rode my bike up the rocks into the hotel lobby and parked it there. Um, they were more worried about my bike than I was, I found on the trip. It was, you know, secure, when I asked if there was secure parking, a lot of times it was, yeah, right here in the lobby of the hotel. 
um, once it was down the hall, around the corner, out by the pool. So finding a place to park one bike was, was never a problem. I never really had a problem trying to find a place to park the motorcycle. Uh, it is hard to find a riding partner. That's one of the advantages of going by yourself, is you're your own company and hopefully you like yourself. Um, there's no personality conflicts unless you're bipolar. When you meet other riders, uh, like I, in this case, uh, I, met, I met a guy from Georgia. It's great to meet another, another person and ride with, and, and you've started interacting, and you're having fun, and they're on an adventure, you're on an adventure, and I think that just about anybody can get along with anybody for one day, two days. Sometimes they're friends for your entire life. But in, in this particular case, I was, this was, his name was Dave, he was a good guy, we hung around for about, I don't know, three, four days, and you know, I, at the end of the four days, I kind of said to him, uh, which way are you going today? He goes, well, I was thinking of going this way. And I said, great, and I'm going that way. And it was just the right amount of time to spend with him. Um, interestingly enough, I met up with him about two weeks or a week later at a gas station. Just randomly, he pulled in about five minutes after I did. And uh, we rode up to Buenos Aires together. So we were able to observe that friendship because just when we were kind of getting on each other's nerves, we simply went a different direction. And, and no hard feelings. right? Because there was no real reason to split other than, you know, we just spent enough time together. I wasn't forced to be with him, he wasn't forced to be with me. You don't ever have to wait for anybody. I'm not really very patient when it comes to waiting for people to get their stuff together. I'll ride with, uh, with anybody who wants to ride with me, and the only requirements I have uh, is you show up when you say you're going to show up, and you have a full tank of gas. Let's go for a ride. So sitting around waiting for people, is, it will drive you insane. If you're, on your, if, if you're on a trip by yourself, you never really have to wait for anybody. You leave when you're ready to leave. And, and, and that, was, um, that was a lot of fun. You know, that was, that made the, for me, that made the trip. You know, there was no last minute cancellation. Somebody had a problem that they had to go deal with. Or, you know, if you were riding, partnered up with somebody for a couple of days and they had an issue, then it was, you know, their problem. You could either choose to help them or not, or you could move on. And, it was just nice to have that, that freedom um, to, to go whenever it is that you wanted to go. Okay, so Bill's going to talk a, a little bit about uh, the cons of going in the group. So I guess the main, the main thing to take away from, from the pro of going alone is really just the freedom to decide what you wanted to do when you wanted to do it. So Bill, go ahead. Thank you, Greg. Very good. Uh, you got to know your riding partner. We've talked about this, we've heard about this. Uh, just because, like I said earlier, just because they've taken that off-road course and got that piece of paper, it doesn't mean that they are going to be competent in riding that piece of gravel up ahead. Uh, different cliques will develop. Uh, you'll get groups hanging around together. Same as you get here, you get different groups of people that, that speak the same language or from the same country and they sort of hanging around together. Uh, personality differences will develop and they, they will last the whole trip. You can't get away from it. Uh, the person's there for the long run. And you're always waiting for someone else. And there's always somebody who's slow, uh, be it at a border crossing or at a service for the bike. I mean, it's one thing to run into a service and get your tire swapped. It might be a couple of hours to get your tires right away. You pull in there with a group of 20 bikes and everybody's getting their tires. You're 
basically taken over the shop for three days. And then there's always one person who wants some other Farco put on their bike, which uh, is going to take even more time. Meanwhile, you're the first bike done, and you've got three days of nothing. You're paying for the hotel, the meals, all the other stuff, and you're stuck in the middle of a city where you don't want to be. And you've got no place to go, because it might be somewhat dangerous. And uh, you're waiting. And this happens on a regular basis, be it at a border crossing or in service, whatever. So a four-month trip might have three weeks of that as dead time because you're waiting for other people or waiting for service or waiting for customs, whatever. Or that person, that customs, forgot to get stamped into the country properly and has got to head all the way back. Uh, there's all kinds of issues. A lot of people ask, how much does one of these tours cost? You heard the figure uh, from around the world on $100,000 for a around the world trip. What she didn't say is that doesn't cover all the costs. You've got to pay for your own meals, your own airfare, your gas, your tires, your service. You expect to pay double or triple what you would for parts in some of these countries because of luxury taxes, uh, if parts are even available. You've got to pay uh, all your rounds of booze, which can get quite pricey. Uh, it's not cheap. Expect to spend 50 to 100% of that cost again on your own expenses. So you're looking at. I don't know, $200,000 on a trip like that. For, for me, the cost was $25,000 and I was like forty dollars to $50,000 out of pocket to do a four month trip. That's a serious change for me and I wouldn't do that again because I could do it myself. Like I said, uh, a border crossing can take eight to 10 hours when you're doing a group because there's always people who, who argue with the person or whatever, you know, and they just say, just shut up, and let's get going, just agree with them, keep them happy, keep going, but there's always somebody in the group who gets into an argument, and everything takes forever. Uh, servicing takes a long time, talk about it. You carry what you need, I carry spare tires. Uh, I started out with two, I was down to one by the time I hit the Andes. Cost, they'll pay, for that stuff I spoke about earlier, but you have to pay for gas, repairs, parts, tolls, entry fees, uh, your evening meals uh, are all on yours, all your beverages, your airfares, your passports, your visas, your carnets if you're going to other countries, uh, especially in the Middle East and Africa, uh, which could be up to four times the value of your bike, your gratuities, your tips, uh, the rounds at the bars, all in all, add a lot of money to what they quote you on the trip. That was Bill discussing the cons in his view of traveling with a group. And Greg's up next to talk about the cons in his view of traveling by himself. Okay, so uh, I, I loved my adventure and had a great time. Uh, we'll definitely do it again. But there are some disadvantages to going uh, by yourself. First one is there's no one around to help you when there is a problem. You're by yourself, you wipe out, you're going to have to get your own bike out of the ditch. Uh, in this particular case, this was in Peru. Uh, this one wasn't so bad. I just kind of slipped and, and fell uh, off the bike, low speed. Kind of freaked me out. Uh, it was the first accident I had on the trip. And I immediately jumped off the bike and, and, and pulled it out. And I kind of, you know, wasn't thinking. I kind of hurt myself a bit pulling the bike back. I think if somebody had been with me, they would have said, you know, hey, you just fell off your bike, wait a minute, let's pull this bike out together, and my muscles wouldn't have been, so I would restrain myself. Um, if you do get, there was a, uh, some guys I met from Alaska, there was a father-son, 
and the neighbor. And the father wiped out on his bike pretty good and, and busted his shoulder up. And, and I, met, I ended up meeting them a few times along the trip. And, you know, they were in the middle of nowhere in, uh, on Route 40 in, in Argentina. And he said, you know, thank God the three of us were here. Because, you know, somebody was able to deal with his injuries. Um, help came along and, you know, lifting the bike up onto this guy's truck, the local's truck, and, and coordinating things, and then somebody rode the bike out, and, you know, with three people there, when you're seriously injured, uh, or even minor, you know, minor injuries, it's really good to have somebody else around to help you. Um, repairs and finding supplies, it's a lot easier when there's two people. Uh, I broke the rim on my, on my bike, and I was actually riding with somebody else at the time when that happened, when I hit the pothole. Uh, he was um, originally from Uruguay, so he spoke perfect Spanish, we were in Colombia when this happened, so he went and got help while I just waited by the side of the road. It was really, really nice that I wasn't alone when that happened. Um, and as Bill mentioned, you know, picking up a 600-pound bike, it's a lot easier when somebody else is helping. Uh, boredom. Everybody likes to tell you that every day on your trip is an adventure. And it's true, but some days are, are not as adventurous as others. Uh, you take a day like today, for example. It's crappy, it's cold, it's raining, it's wet. And you may choose not to ride today if you were on your own. And your that own was trip. Greg Powell and Bill Hookius doing you know, their presentation two ways down at the Horizons Unlimited talk. Meet uh, in uh, Perry Sound, Ontario, just you know, this year, 2014. Where you're from, how fast did your bike go, how much does your bike cost, and that may be the end of the conversation. And saying that 15 times a day gets on your nerves, and sometimes you just want to be by yourself. And, and you know, you tend to maybe lock yourself into a room. It really comes down to your decision and, and your personal preferences. Um, that was Greg Powell, and before that, Bill Hoykus doing their presentation two ways down at the Horizons Unlimited Meet in Perry Sound, Ontario. Coming up next, we have Brent Henry from Quadra Island, British Columbia. And Brent and I are going to discuss the pros and cons from our point of view of solo versus group travel. Brent's ridden his KLR650 to Mexico, the Yukon, and Alaska, and um, at times he's been traveling by himself, and at other times he's traveled with a pillion, and then um, sometimes he's, he's met up with other people and ridden with them, including myself. So you get a taste of what it's like to travel solo um, or with a, a group agenda, so to speak, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Here, Brent and I have sat down at his kitchen table to discuss our point of view on the pros and cons of group versus solo travel from our experience. Hey, Brent. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, thanks, Jim. Pleased to be here. So today we're talking about um, traveling solo versus group travel and uh, looking at the pros and cons, and I know you've done a, a bunch of both. Solo versus group travel, um, what's the first thing that pops into your mind comparing the two, good or bad? What I notice is that with singular travel, I'm more open to new experiences more quickly. For instance, um, getting to know new people, uh, I do a lot of photography, as you know, when uh, I'm biking. And I'm more inclined to get pictures of other people uh, quicker when I'm out doing photography. If I'm with somebody else or in a group, I think my experiences and my photography and who I talk to is 
of course, centered around that group and your partner. And then you, at, at some point when opportunity comes, you, you step outside it. But what I notice is uh, more focused on uh, things around me than the persons around me. Let's talk about group travel then just for a second here. And um, what are the pros of group travel? What's the first thing that pops in your mind? I would say safety and camaraderie. You're not so aware all the time of being cautious about every move you make, especially when you're off the beaten track. With a group, you can relax a little bit more. I mean, I'm a cautious person when I go out. I I don't take um, unconsidered risks, but I would be more relaxed in a group in that way. And the other thing I notice about group travel, I think, is just the... uh, the immediate sharing with people, uh, you, you, might, uh, you might both experience something, want to share it, see something spectacular, have a unique experience. Or what I notice when I'm traveling with my partner, my other half, is that she may notice things that I don't see because I'm busy watching the road and watching for hazards around me. And she's able to point out, slow down, have a look to your right. There's a moose or there's a bear or whatever. Yeah. It's it's interesting. You, you mentioned safety, but safety doesn't necessarily mean life and death, does it? I mean, safety can be just as far as getting stuck, right? I mean, because, you know, you and I ride together a lot. And when we go out, um, there's some sort of relaxed feeling you get having that other person there, even just for the most mundane things, even if you get a flat tire, it makes a difference. It's one thing, I should say, to change the tire on your own in the pouring rain. It's another thing to change it with another person. And that could be thrown into the safety aspect of it, um, although it's, it's not really safety, but it's, uh, it's comfort. I, I think that's an excellent word for it, yes, because it's a state of mind. Um, you're, you're not always... Um, you're not filtering things as much as you go out there. Uh, when you've got another person around, you're able to uh, just be more relaxed, more comfortable, uh, and there's not that little nagging edge in the background that's on, you know, a little little light that says, you've got to watch the road conditions. You, you better be careful how far you're going. Or Not that I worry about that, but it's something you keep in mind when you're out there solo. Yeah, and there's always the thing, I mean, when we're in the mountains, riding through the mountains, there's always that feeling you get. Maybe it's late in the day and you're by yourself and it's pouring rain. I mean, we were out before just uh, last week in the pouring rain. If you had been on your own there, I had been on my own there, it would have been a different feeling. It's just a, a, just a slightly different feeling knowing that you don't have that backup. And again, that's not, that's not a big safety thing, but it's, it's almost just peace of mind. Peace of mind, and I'd say it eliminates some of the discomfort that's yeah. obvious of uh, riding in the rain. We're always warm, but we take with us with this activity that we... Uh, we're going to be damp. Because I think the thing with group travel, and be it with another person like you and I going out riding or going out with a group. Uh, I mean, last year we, we uh, managed to connect for a ride with uh, Ben from Australia. And that was great. There was three of us there. But the whole dynamic changes, doesn't it? I mean, from one, two to three and on up, the dynamic changes of your trip. And it can be a great thing, which a lot of it is. And then some of it can be a bit of a pain in the butt. And besides your example, what I remember one is last year, because for instance, we've, we've ridden a lot together and you weren't around, uh, you were doing other things. Um, so I sort of stepped out of the box last year and I did some group rides, which I hadn't done before. And it was a totally different experience. It was very nice, but, uh, you're dealing with multiple people, as you say, even with a group of three. So there's other considerations in there, how you get along, just what you, uh, 
what you hear from the other people, reflections. It's a different personality. When you're in a big group, I think what you start to notice is as the group sorts out, you see little subgroups happening where people get along with each other. And I try to also meet those other people that may not be in the little subgroup that I formed after two days, but you're on a three or four day ride. You get to move around and meet other people and other riding styles, other information about motorcycling. And that's a neat thing too about group riding is, especially with new people, is you you have a whole wealth of information there that you can tap in the context of writing, which is great. You're not, you're not looking at it on the internet. You're out there doing it. Yeah. And making connections and making new friends. Uh, and of course, one of the immediate downsides you get anytime you get a group and the bigger the group, the worse it becomes is delays. You go to get yourself ready. You work at a certain pace. Maybe you work slower or faster than somebody else. And then you find yourself be feeling rushed to, to, to catch up with everybody um, or waiting for others. And waiting for others can be a big deal for a large group. Not so much two, three, four. I think you can probably get around that because you know, you're know not that concerned. You know everybody fairly well. But when you get into a large group and um, you start to travel and then you get delay after delay, there's a certain point where you get these diminishing returns, I think, with the larger groups. It changes the dynamic and, and it does get to a point of diminishing returns where you'll have so many delays especially if you're running so many different bikes and so many different skill levels, that that can become a real problem. Yeah, I think delays are a problem. The other thing is decision-making. And what I noticed last year is um, you and I and a couple of others, locals here, we went down on a road trip down to uh, see a motorcycle show down uh, South Island. And we had discussed right immediately after that about it being a road ride. We didn't think about what happens if somebody's missing? What's our plan? What's our game plan for the day? Do you wait for somebody five minutes somewhere? You haven't seen them for 10 minutes. Do you stop the, 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 the group in front and wait for that person? And right after that, I went on an organized ride, and we all broke up immediately into small groups. It was uh, a little bit challenging, a minor technical ride, but it was a good one. Uh, what I noticed is, though, is uh, everyone selected groups. So we met people the night before. We had this big sort of campfire situation, and it wasn't long before we had a group of four. And because of that experience going down island, I suggested that we make a travel plan for the day. We were following GPS routes, and uh, we just didn't know what would happen at corners. I had never ridden with these guys before. The whole day worked out very successfully. We had a couple of minor falls. People were waiting for people. People help people technically on sections. Now, by comparison, I went on a larger ride, wonderful ride, totally different with uh, being out there with a whole group. I would have preferred to have it break into smaller groups. That's what I found after that previous experience. Instead, what we did is we traveled as a large group, and we would meet up. And there's where the delay factor came in. You're waiting for quite some time. Yeah. And it can really drag down a trip. Uh, many years ago, um, we used to run, um, well, it wasn't even formal. We, we did these four wheel drive trips and we'd take a, you know, the day on the weekend, the Sunday or the Saturday or whatever, and we would go four wheeling and it was trail running. But what happened was the sort of the word got out about what we were doing and, and people came and they wanted to, to go with us. And they, they just seemed to come more and more. And pretty soon we, we looked down the, the road one day. We used to meet at this one particular restaurant, looked down the road one day, and there was, I don't know, 30, 40 trucks lined up there. Well, all of a sudden, you know, you had a big thing there. And, you know, quickly we adopted the fact we needed a sweep vehicle, et cetera. But the delays we found was, it was incredible. And eventually we stopped doing it because there was too many people showing up for it. We didn't really have any limits on it. Or we, weren't, we weren't really inviting anyone. But there's too many vehicles showing up and the delays were just too great and too varied. And I think 
Anytime you run with a group, you've got to have at least one person as a leader. You got to have a decision maker. You know, I, I think that's um, that's paramount. You've got to have a plan, and then you've got to have your contingency plans. And, and of course, I mean, I come from commercial tourism, so I'm I'm very well aware of this, and maybe more so than than the average person. And you having a background in tourism as well know the same. But I think a lot of people make the mistake of not doing that. And it's very easy to sit around a table, even like what we're doing right now, um, and discuss a plan for a trip, and then say, okay, this is how we're going to do it. You're going to be in charge of this. You're going to do this. You're going to run sweep or whatever and get it sorted before you go. It's a whole other thing that morning when people have helmets on and, and gas in their tanks and they're ready to go and you're trying to sort out a plan. I think that, in my mind, that's much more difficult to do. And I think, well, hopefully when somebody organizes a ride like that, they have an idea before they start out that morning how many people are coming. And certainly both these organiza- or this organization, the, uh, the people within it that uh, did these rides, organized these rides last year, did do that. The other thing, though, I think of a good leader, which comes out when the group is larger, is delegating. And that's what I think would have helped the larger ride, is uh, this person knew several people, had ridden with them before. I think if uh, the other people could have been delegated to head some of the subgroups, you know, and maybe meet in an hour and a half or at a specific spot where we knew we were going, because it was all GPS tracks had been very well supplied to everyone. I think that would have made it a little smoother. But it was a successful ride, not a complaint. But it would have minimized the waiting for 20 people to catch up continually. Mm. So would you go more for saying, um, this is the layout of the trip, these are the meetup points, and then basically let everybody go to those meetup points and meet up? Or would you just do the, uh, I, I want to say, slinky run, where you know where the first person goes and then they end up stopping and then everybody else catches up and they go again? Yeah, there was a bit of the slinky run that I would prefer not to be a part of in that ride and uh but it was a wonderful ride and i'm certainly not you know slagging yeah, no, anybody we don't, we're not criticizing no it, no uh, i i'm but it's interesting to dissect it's those things. yes yeah. and and i think that i would yes rather have it uh, delegated to people and subgroups and have specific meetup points because we had those on the uh, gps's now i'm not sure i don't remember whether there was a lack of gps's that can be a problem you want at least two in a group in case there's some failure and to be able to cross-reference, you know, when you're in the middle of nowhere. You know, as well as I do, those logging roads, uh, you don't get good views. So you can you can be in a, a total maze, a labyrinth, and yeah. not sure where you are at times. I think when you have a smaller group and you've designated uh, somebody as a, a, a sweep and they're competent at that, and you're the leader, or maybe you have a sub person who can go back and you can trust them, you know them, I think that's fine. But I, I wouldn't want to see that in any more than a group of maybe six people. Other people have different preferences, but I'd say somewhere around there. The real fun with the group is when you guys all get together, right? I mean, you know, you get into a spot, you stop, and you all get together, and you talk about what leg you've just done. That's the real fun. And the the photographs that you can pass around, the connections you make, the whole bit. But let's talk for a minute about solo travel. You've done a a bunch of solo trips, including Mexico and Alaska, the Yukon. Um, There's there's a certain uh, real, well, there's a definite change in the trip, isn't there? when you're going solo, right from the get-go. It's a different sort of trip. Yes. um, I guess for myself, I'm not sharing the planning. So it's all on me, and I can make it whichever level I want, whether I want to uh, pre-plan everything, uh, follow a guidebook, or just uh, wing it. I I take the responsibility, and I take the, uh, the gains and the losses from it. So it's easy in that way. Yeah, you've got to consider other things. Uh, where you're going, remoteness, of course, is a big thing. But 
the social factor for me, as you know, uh, I'm an only child, so I've, I've experienced that all my life. And it's, it's not an issue for me to end up somewhere down the road where there isn't a group to camp with and share. If I have to camp on my own that night, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. I've seen that as a factor for other people. They don't necessarily enjoy that. I think camping brings a lot of anxieties for people, and especially when they think of camping by themselves, which is the attraction to campgrounds, et cetera. I mean, you and I are more the type to wild camp if we can. It's a, it's a very easy thing for us to do. And we're based in BC. Uh, we can camp in campgrounds. We can camp almost anywhere outside of the urban aspect. But you go into another country like Mexico, for instance, I'm perfectly comfortable with camping. In Mexico, there are people everywhere. And it's not necessarily uh, everywhere you can camp. So I used, uh, stayed with people, uh, contacts I had. I uh, stayed in a few hotels. I did camp as well. Is that, does that create fears for you, uh, at least a little bit, as you're, you know, you're in a foreign country, you're looking for a place to camp, and you've got all the considerations to take in, not only to find a place, but then to worry about, is it on private land, and, and am I going to run into a problem with you know, banditos or, or whatever the case is? Um, that's got to bring up some anxiety. Well, it's funny. The private land issue has um, been more a consideration for me when traveling in the United States. Um, we don't have as much wild land there as in Canada. Other places, um, yeah, there's certainly consideration for that. Uh, for instance, I was in the Copper Canyon this year, and uh, I couldn't get to a town before dark settled. So I camped right off the side of the road. There was nothing flat. It was precipitous. And uh, I took a risk. Um, I weighed it. I knew that there may be, so I slept very lightly that evening. I had a very bright light with me if I could identify, if I heard anything. There was truck traffic. The only thing that went by that woke me up, uh, because I was in a, you know, a not very relaxed situation there, were cattle walking by. <laughs> but Well, that's a fear in itself. That's right, <laughs> yeah. stomp on your tent. Small <laughs> nylon tent, yeah. a big animal. But they were where I was there. That was not a problem. But uh, it was also an area which is known to uh, the drug industry cultivates their product there. But at the same time, you have this juxtaposition where the government is encouraging tourism. And they're certainly not telling people to travel in that area. But when you go off the road down there, I wouldn't go too far. I may be worried not so much about private property, but end up camping in somebody's pot plantation. And somebody perhaps coming by with armed weapons. I had none of those problems. But that evening, not knowing the territory and knowing that it was very hilly, I stayed on a pullout on the side of the road. And I was a little nervous about it, but the, the night went fine. I don't normally do that as a practice, but I had to that evening. It was a totally different consideration for doing that, say, in comparison on the Cassiar Stewart Highway in northern BC, where I probably, the only thing that would have gone by was a commercial truck. The funny thing is in Mexico, it was the same thing. They were just commercial trucks went by in the evening. That's one thing that, that comes in, uh, comes up in conversation a lot about camping is the, the risk factor or the fear of camping. Most people are afraid of wild animals. And whereas for me, I'm not afraid of wild animals. I'm afraid of people because that's where your problems come in uh, when you're camping is you have to worry about people more than anything, right? We've, well, as you know, both of us have had a lot of uh, exposure to wild animals um, and that's part of our background in Canada. Down in Mexico, I saw very few wild animals, but there's a higher density population. You've got a lot of disparity between wealth and poverty, which we don't see, especially in the rural areas in Canada, more an urban consideration. Uh, yeah, and it's a totally different thought process. Let's talk a little bit about your trip to Alaska. Just give us an overview of what that was. 
I went up uh, Vancouver Island, took the ferry up to Prince Rupert, and then rode from there up. Janice met me in um, Fairbanks. She flew in. Before she arrived, though, I went up through the Yukon, picked up a tire, had it mounted in Fairbanks, and then I went up and I had a weather window. On the way up, uh, people were giving horrid stories of the Dalton Highway with mud this year. They had a very uh, cool, damp early summer, late spring up in Alaska. Get to Fairbanks, clouds opened up. The temperature must have gone up 8 degrees, now speaking Celsius. And uh, the fellow at the motorcycle shop said, you've got an opening. If you're thinking of doing the Dalton, I'd leave tonight. So I did. Got the tire mounted, left Fairbanks. Went up camp that evening, ran into two other fellows. We, we basically, not a style I like riding, but to take advantage of the weather window and with two other people on this route, uh, we ended up uh, doing it in one day all the way up from my camp spot north of Fairbanks and where they had stayed. And then we came halfway down the next day, and I let them go on. And on the way down, uh, I was three days early to pick up my uh, other half at the airport, so I went down the uh, Manly Hot Springs Road and had a uh, great experience down there, came back. Fairbanks, and that's where we started the uh, two-up trip. Right. So, so when you're traveling single, it's kind of interesting to hear you you tell the story again because you're traveling single, you're going by yourself, and then you end up meeting up with other people and riding with them. So, in essence, you're riding in a group. That's a loose group. Obviously, when we, we meet somebody like that, we just ride with them, and um, uh, you weren't making any rules or, or anything like that. Did you say anything to them, the, the two, when you decided to ride with them? Did you did you discuss it at all before you left saying, hey, if something happens or I might just ride off on my own or if I'm going too slow or too fast? Was anything discussed then? Well, no, at first there wasn't, and we weren't really riding together. It was very interesting because during that day, we kept meeting up with each other. At first, I left uh, Yukon Crossing before them. I briefly met them there, and then I think it was Arctic Circle. We were all together there. And then they left. I let them go. And then we went up to Dead Horse. We happened to meet there again. Uh, it seemed like we were the only three bikes heading north. I know there were others. I found out later on the, on the day we had people pass us, and I saw some in the morning. But at one point, where um, conditions were getting later in the day, and I was behind them in a group, rough group, strung out. And uh, we I can't remember where it was we stopped. I think it was around Galbraith Lake or somewhere. And... Uh, I had stopped to put on some warmer clothing. It was getting really cool on the tundra. It was good weather, but cold and windy. And I had stopped to uh, put on my system of clothing and get some uh, more protection. And the guys popped back to find me because they, they hadn't seen me for a while. They had stopped. They hadn't seen me. And they thought something happened. And that, at that point, we made a plan. We would stay with each other. And they offered. I, didn't, I was quite fine just running into them and riding solo. But out of consideration for me, they stopped. And by this time, each time we had spoken, I was able to suss them up. They were able to suss me out. Figure, decent fellow, got some riding experience, vice versa. So we said, we're going to stay together. Whenever we stop, we'll wait for each other. And we did. And it worked out very well. Do you think it would have been any different had you been traveling with two other people? So your group of three and then their group of two? Because even when you talked about traveling with the dual sport VC thing, you, you said that everybody sort of broke off into their own little smaller groups, which always happens in mm -hmm. a group I mean, with anything you do. And those groups tend to not mix. It's one of the things when you're organizing something is you always try and mix people up, especially right. if you're teaching things to, to get them away from people they're really comfortable with. So... Would it have been a different dynamic, do you think, had you been traveling up with those two other people, like two, you know, myself and, and maybe Ben? Uh, so it would have been our group of three and then another group of two. Do you think you would have made the connection with them the same? 
Well, that's hard to say. At first, when you uh, started to ask that, I was thinking of just running into two different people because I didn't know these fellows well. But it worked out we were a very, uh, you know, likable group. With two more, yeah, yeah, I think it would have been different uh, because there was already that comfort. If I had been with you and Ben, as we had done the TCAT last year, um, we would have been comfortable at that point. And the other fellows probably wouldn't have been as concerned for us. We might have met them. But I could see that probably it would have been a group of three and a group of two. I don't know whether we would have joined together. Yeah, and, and I don't know if that's bad or good. No, I just no. think it's an interesting thing to think about because I do have a tendency to think that when you travel by yourself, you you probably um, maybe just meet more people, become more integrated with your surroundings because there's less banter back and forth. However, you give up that camaraderie. You give up that thing of, of sharing something. I mean, it's funny when I asked Austin Vince about this, uh, about uh, group travel, and the, the first thing that he said was fun. He says, way more fun with a group of people that you know. And I thought it was interesting because many times when I speak to other people and, and do interviews and I ask them what they think about group travel, the first thing everybody says is safety, right? I mean, that, right. that's what we said first right. was safety. And I thought it was interesting that that fun aspect because that is a huge part of it. And as a matter of fact, it's probably in everybody's minds, if you really think about it, it is the number one thing with traveling with a group is, is this really fun. But as the trade-off, I think that you would miss out on those connections that you made and you probably got to know their names and you've made connections and, you know, you may exchange email addresses and, and meet up later on. So maybe what we have to do is when we travel as groups to make a point to include more people in what we're doing. Or I think that Austin most likely um, had sussed out his group, you know, at least communicated with them before to make sure that they are compatible because it can be a horror story if you get the wrong people together oh, yeah, under forced conditions. Right? I think that was his case. I mean, he, yeah. he's referring to, yeah. uh, you know, Mondo Sahara when sure, I was talking about exactly. this. So it's all his yeah. friends. And for me, too, um, traveling on my own, when I left those guys, I didn't feel it was any less fun. Uh, yeah, that's you know. a good point because, you know, and, and that happened to me when we did the TCAT, too, because I rode by myself at first for, for I don't know how many days I was on my own. And then I met up with you and Ben, um, who were traveling from a different route, and then we rode together. To me, the whole thing was great. There was great things about both. When I was traveling by myself, there was great things about it. And then when I met up with you guys, there was great things about it. Um, there's certainly... Uh, yeah, the, I have to rate it quite high riding with other people in my mind because there is a lot that's really, really fun about it. Right. Um, but it is a different experience and it's a load of fun riding on my own as well. So, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't be able to choose between one or the other and I, 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 I doubt you could either, right? Well, here I'll give you an example is when we ride together and I think Ben got included in this, you and I tend to joke around a lot. We know each other's sense of humor. Ben accepted that. So it worked out well. He wasn't one to really initiate a lot of jokes, but he got them and he took part in the laughs. Right. He didn't feel excluded and we didn't try to exclude him. It was all very uh, communal in that aspect. When I was traveling with the two guys I met up on the Dalton Highway, I didn't sense they had the same sense of humor at all. So I really, you know, I, I, I tempered that because uh, they just reacted in a polite, but it, it didn't, it was, there was no catalyst for the humor that existed in some other group situations. But as far as being out there and being on my own, uh, I have a great time when I stop in the group, you know, and I, I leave the group, the group changes. And that is the nice thing about the solo thing is you can form groups with other people, but you're not necessarily committed to that for the whole trip. 
Although on the other side, the trade-off is when you're riding solo and just forming a loose group, you don't get all the securities that you would with your organized group, mm. uh, the, the real securities, right? Sure, I mean, there's sure. not that real commitment to stick together. People may have their own agenda. And if you have a breakdown, they say, hey, you're taking too long. I'm sorry, we're going to have to push on best of luck sort of thing. And that's understandable. Um, and you certainly, uh, you'll get more of that by developing your own group. I met a fellow on the trip. It was really interesting. Uh, it was a unique experience for me. I was on the Alaskan highway and I went into one of those little rest areas that are all over down the highway dotted. And there was a fellow traveling there. He was on a bicycle and I have a background with cycle touring as well as motorcycles. So it was interesting. I like talking to the cyclists and see what they've gone through. He had been up in the Dalton highway. The thing I noticed right away was it seemed to me right away he was into a solo trip. It was hard to communicate with him. He, he didn't share a lot. He was not, uh, uh, it didn't bother him. I was talking to him. He met me. But he really seemed into his own thing. And that's perfectly valid. But I didn't get the sense that he was the type of person who would stay long in a group or really appreciate that. Again, back to the TCAT, when I met up with you and Ben, before I met up with you guys, some of the route we retraced, because I went farther right. than you guys, and we ended up retracing, and I won't go into it just to save a boring explanation. But um, in retracing, I, I got to see some of the people that I saw on my first run through. The first run through, I talked to you know everyone. I'm, I tend to be kind of talkative when I go into places. I seemed to develop at least a little bit of rapport with the people where they remembered me when I came back around. It was only a couple of days later. But I noticed as we went in as a group, they took a step back. The same people that were so talkative, so chatty with me before, they took a step back because the three of us, and of course you and I were probably the worst for it, joking around, which maybe can be tough to get into. I don't know. <laughs> you know, someone from the outside may have trouble, you know, working their way into it. But I saw those same people step back, even though they spoke to me and they recognized me and, you know, they would say something about, oh, I see you found your friends that you were looking for. Well, you were familiar, but we perhaps weren't. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. But they just took that step back. Yeah, it's, a, it's another example of the difference that you get. I like the idea of, of uh, traveling along and meeting up with people. Many do. Many people do it. I mean, a lot of travelers who write books and, and that we get to interview on, on this show, they'll say the same things. You know, they meet up with people and they may ride for them for an extended period of time, six weeks, a month or whatever, and develop really great friendships. That solo start off does give you that flexibility to sort of move on when you want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think not just moving on, but it adds another degree of... Um, Variety to the trip, mm. which I really like. I like variety. So let me ask you this then. Um, you're talking about Janice, your girlfriend, um, having no interest. And I know the reason you're saying that is because you're hoping that, you know, she's, or you've talked about the fact that she may be interested in getting a bike. She's talked about it as well. She's verbalized it. Okay. <laughs> so, so, and if she does, if Janice gets a bike and you start doing your trips together, um, how do you think that will change your, your travel, your motorcycle adventures? Well, I, right away, I don't think we'll do all our trips together. We're very independent. We have a unique relationship, as you know, because we don't live together. But we, we share other things. We, we've uh, traveled in other ways together. We um, both have a background of uh, hiking and multi-day hiking, like backpacking. We've done kayaking together. But she is the type to go off into the mountains and camp by herself. That's exactly what I was getting to. We can backpack together and we enjoy it. We get along fine. But if I'm not available or I choose to do something else, we're both totally at ease with going doing it on our own, including her as a single woman. She's done it. Now, whether she would want a motorcycle on our own, that will only come with time. But she bicycles on her own. She backpacks on her own as well. So, okay, so you might not do all the trips together. You, you'll still get your solo dose in. Solo so you, fix, yeah. So you, you, you feel that that'll be a good balance for you then? 
Yes, I think so. For instance, like next summer, I'm thinking of doing something overseas. I have uh, a unique opportunity. I, I don't uh, work in the summers. I have that time free. But next year, Janice has something planned. She wants to, having just retired, she wants to spend a lot of time at home, gardening, things like that. She may uh, be raising a dog at that time. She's thinking to get a little puppy. For me, I'm going off. No problem. You know, she just said, that's fine. You do your thing, and we'll do it next time. And, and we're actually thinking of selling the motorcycle that we've used for two up because she doesn't ride on her own. I have another motorcycle. So when it comes time, uh, when there's a summer or I'm close to retirement, that we have time to do a trip, we'll probably just get another bike, or maybe by that time she'll be riding on her own. I'll tell you, here's an interesting example that we found last year is we bought a communication system for the bike, and it didn't work out very well. We tried it for several days, and uh, there was a lot of extraneous noise from the motorcycles, meaning a helmet system, uh, um, we call intercom between us. So we abandoned it. And when we, as we kept going, I said, do you want to try that again? Should we try it? And we basically decided that, no, we were fine without talking and bantering to each other all the time while we were riding. In fact, it was even expressed that perhaps it was a distraction. But what happens as a result of that is when you get to the campground or lunch at night, at lunchtime, you, uh, you end up discussing how the ride went and talking about it. Yeah, you have a lot to say at that point. Yeah, and perhaps that's why I've noticed that when I am traveling with someone, I tend to be um, less inclined or, or have maybe just not the time to go out and meet other people or talk with the, the campers, although I've been accused of being late for dinner quite a few times because I wandered <laughs> off. So. I'm sure of that. But we tried the communicators for the, at least the one time there that we managed to try it. It was great for what we were doing. Like for riding on two separate bikes, um, it can be very good for figuring out where you are. But we didn't try it for an extended period of time. And it does make you wonder, and I've heard other people say the same thing. Some people do not use communicators when they travel with a, a pillion or or another rider, other people really like them because they can uh, keep in contact and talk about things. That... Yeah, and I think when we experimented with the before too, I, I seem to remember we found the real value was uh, if we had separated, we're looking for something on a road, we would stop and communicate and say, I found nothing here. I'm coming back to the junction. I'll meet you in five, that sort of thing. We didn't banter back and forth. No. Because no, when you're off-road, I think you're concentrating a lot more on the road conditions. There was no need for that. Mostly what we had used it for, Janice and I, was when traveling on the highway. I'm just talking. Do you think the quality of the communicator affected that as well? I oh. mean, you said you had problems with it. Had it been per crystal clear and a really great communication system, do you think that would have made it a different experience? It could have been very well. Uh, we talked to a lot of people had Scalas and other systems, which, you know, the latest Bluetooth, and they loved them, you know. But most of the ones we met, too, um, that had those systems were road riders, not so much the off-road with the couple having the communication system. I don't know why. What about the considerations of um, decision-making, figuring out how far you want to push things on a trip? Perhaps uh, as a solo rider, you're more inclined to uh, explore. You know, you see a side road and you go, right? Yeah, that's true. You know, And, and if you have a pillion, you, you need to explain that. There... And the consideration of... A rough road with a pillion. It doesn't necessarily work. Like when we went up the the Nebesna road, there were Fords up there. They didn't look too too uh, difficult. But when uh, discussing that with my pillion, other concerns came out. 
and we decided no. Yeah, that's a very good point because that dramatically changes things. And it would even with another bike because when you're doing something, you have to make sure the other bike is capable and the other rider is capable of doing it. So even if Janice had been on her own motorcycle there, you probably would have decided not to do it, right? Because she probably wouldn't have the skill level to do the Ford like you could uh, or as deep and, and there's a certain risk there. Sure, sure. We, uh, we stopped, we walked it, which made a lot of sense. That's another thing we may not have done if we hadn't been two of us. You, as you know, you, we look up ahead and you stand up and you get a good view and you say, oh, that's six inches. Then you get in the middle and you find out it's soft as anything and you got to gun it. <laughs> but to do those things with the pillion, yeah, you, you take on a different, uh, whole different set of responsibility, uh, increased responsibility when you're carrying someone. And I've talked to many people who I've toured with, run into on tours and, and communicated with who have said, I, I, I've never wanted to accept that responsibility taking my pillion, you know, with me. Mm. Well, that's an interesting point. So let me ask you this. There's just the road accident aspect too, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Because you're in charge of the vehicle. Your preference, would it be that your pillion, that you have a pillion or that they ride their own motorcycle? We've talked about it a lot. My preference, I think, was tending towards getting Janice interested in having her own bike. I think that was, the dialogue came from me. It's worked out really well having her as a pillion, I think because I still get to do a lot of solo riding. She doesn't want to ride all the time. I'm much more engaged by it than she is. But yeah, I think it definitely came from me. It's probably not a fair question because I guess it goes back to that thing of group or solo travel. I don't think that I could say that, you know, one is better than the other. They're mm. different, right? So, I mean, you can ride with a, a pillion and it's just a different ride. Right. And again, I guess that's one of the great things about this whole thing, the adventure riding. There is no real right and wrong. I mean, people are often saying, hey, what is the best bike? Well, there is no best bike, as we know. For sure. Um, it can be many bikes or any bike for that matter. And it probably goes along the same when we're talking about traveling solo versus traveling group. It's just that if you're going to do one or the other, you need to think about it. Think about what you want out of the trip and what you're going to get from traveling in the, the mode that you choose. It was never a, a big concern of mine carrying somebody on the bike. That has not been a primary concern of mine as other people who I've met. But definitely when I found out through trial and error that my partner really liked motorcycle travel, then the, the aspect of sharing it with her certainly increased. You know, she, she took to it and she loved it and she was quite satisfied by sitting on the back. And uh, it was great. Who knows? That's the same as me traveling with my wife on the back. Um, it definitely changes how I ride. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned uh, rough roads. Well, I think that the, the other person uh, may not have the same desires for, say, um, well, for one thing that Janice mentioned, she noticed that on long gravel roads, she sort of had to prepare herself um, mentally because she found that it was harder on the rear end, more fatiguing to do a long trip. We, we would stop whenever. That's one thing. I stop a lot more when there's both of us. Don't push myself. Don't push her, you know, to dislike the trip. Uh, but she found that uh, on gravel roads, she'd have to stop more often. Definitely not as comfortable. So I think when you get to a place, if you're on a single bike, you may say, oh, look at that climb where there's a few rocks on. Let's go try it. When you have your pillion on it, you may say, I can tell, right, you want to go there? Doesn't interest me. I'll, but, you know, she said, Give me the lunch, you go, I'll wait. <laughs> yeah. You know. There is a huge responsibility, isn't there, as a the rider, the operator of the motorcycle for the pillion. 
for their safety, of course, but for the comfort. You're going to have to consider stopping more. You're going to have to consider the roads you're taking, the route you're taking or not taking. And the motorcycle you're using. Oh, exactly. Some of them don't seem to be set up really well. Let's talk about planning here again for a minute, just in a little bit more detail and the difference that it, um, there is in the planning process from traveling solo uh, versus not so much maybe with a group, but but with a group as well, but definitely with a, with a pillion or a second rider or a third rider. Um, what are some of the differences you see right off the bat? Well, what I see off the bat is that you can share the planning so you don't have to take it on all your own. And that's not necessarily a negative thing, as long as you, you know your partner well. In this case, I was traveling with somebody I knew very well and my girlfriend, and I knew that she was a good planner. We had done a lot of uh, backpacking trips together, uh, other types of trips, uh, backcountry with uh, um, a car, truck. And so I I was comfortable with her planning. So we delegated the planning. Um, for instance, Janice did uh, the places we were going to stop and uh, would be interesting for hiking. Or uh, we divided up the north and south as to where we were going to go camping or researched where there were campgrounds in case we needed to. Uh, We didn't have them all planned. As we got to that area, we said, well, there's one 50 miles ahead or 100 miles ahead. But a part of that, you can make it a lot more interesting, I think, for yourself, is that if you delegate half the planning to the other person and don't necessarily confer what that's all about or the results, you've actually allowed... Um, some more of the adventure to be included in there because I had no idea in the South where we were going hiking. We, we would talk about it a bit, but I had other things to do. Uh, for instance, I spent a lot of time before going over the bike totally, taking things apart, getting to know it. Um, she wasn't interested in that. So she would do the hiking trails and ca- a lot of the campgrounds, where they were, parks, things like that. And normally I would have done that all on my own to the level that I was comfortable with going solo. I don't necessarily always. We've talked about that before. I've used guidebooks. You asked me one time before if I use guidebooks. I may use a guidebook and do some incidental reading before, but if I have the guidebook there, I may only pull it out five times on the trip. The trip's going well. A lot of times you run into other people. They tell you about where you can go, what sites you should see. I I like that that there's a little bit of the unknown in the trip. And I think... uh, Janice does as well. So that helps that when the other person's planning a totally different aspect. Yeah, there's also the, the difference in perspective. I mean, you'll see things sure. a certain way and you'll you'll focus on certain things. Like you said, you're focusing even more on the bike and you have someone else who will look at look for different things, maybe even draw you towards things. I find sometimes when I have my wife in the back, we'll stop and look at things that I probably wouldn't have stopped on my own to look at. But when I stop, I realize, wow, this is really neat. So it's someone else opening you up to something. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much for uh, talking with us on Adventure Rider Radio about uh, solo versus group travel. I appreciate having you on. Thanks for taking the time. Been a pleasure, Jim. I've been speaking with Brent Henry, photographer, adventure motorcyclist, and traveler from Quadra Island, British Columbia. Well, that wraps it up. Another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. My name's Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Hey, you want to do Adventure Rider Radio a favor? Head over to iTunes and give us a rating. Or drop by the website, send us a comment. 
And donations are always welcome, so drop by the website and click on the donation button and uh, fill out your information there. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Brent Henry from Quadra Island, British Columbia, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.